Father's authority, we thank you for that authority that you've given us, that you've invested in us. And through that authority, Father, no weapon formed against us shall prosper. For the greater one lives within us. So we ask your blessing upon this time as we share your word. In the mighty name of Jesus. Amen and amen. You can go ahead and be seated. Praise the Lord. Well, God is good. Well, again, we're continuing our series, The Believer's Authority. And uh, tonight we're talking about the power of the flow, the flow of the anointing, the flow of the Holy Spirit, and, and uh, how that takes place. Um, and the example that we're going to be looking at tonight is the woman with the issue of blood, because, you know, I think it's just one of the perfect examples in the scriptures of, of how that anointing flows. And by anointing, we're not necessarily, although it can be, talking about a tangible feeling or, or something like that, but the anointing is, is what breaks the yoke of bondage. And how do those yokes get broken? And so in Mark, the fifth chapter, we have the account of the woman with the issue of blood, and we're familiar with it, but we're going to go ahead and uh, begin reading it anyway. And I'm going to begin in the 25th verse. It says, Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years, and had suffered many things from many physicians. So in other words, she didn't just go to one. She was going every place she could to find the answer. She had spent all that she had and was not better, but rather grew worse. Then she heard about Jesus. Thank God she heard about Jesus. Then she heard about Jesus. She came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she had said, if only I can touch his clothes... I shall be made well. Immediately. Not a long time. Immediately. You know, I believe that our God wants to do some immediate things in our lives. If we'll give him the opportunity, if we'll truly believe him. If we'll do as the woman with the issue of blood, that if we see uh, the truth about Jesus and we act upon it, uh, I believe we'll see some of those immediates. And so it says, immediately the flow of her blood was dried up and she felt it in herself or she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. She was healed in her body. Now, we're talking about the power of the flow. How, how, do, how does that come about? Well, we look at the woman with the issue of blood and what was it? Obviously, she heard about Jesus. And when she heard about Jesus, she immediately accepted it, accepted who he was, what was said about him, and she did something about it. You know, you've, you've heard me say this before, that faith demands an action. Because she believed it, it demanded, she had to do something about it. If we really believe something and we believe it strong enough, we're going to act upon it. And that's what this 
woman who had this issue for these 12 years had done. She heard about Jesus. She fought through the crowd, touched the garment, and she was restored. She was completely healed. But then in the 30th verse, it goes on and says, And Jesus immediately, knowing in himself that power had gone out of him. Now, this is the, this is the point that I want to emphasize as we're looking at this. It wasn't that Jesus decided for this one woman he was going to elude, he was going to release the flow. She put the demand upon the flow. You know, Jesus, it says he felt that it went out of his body, but it wasn't him that had released it. You know, in fact, <clears throat> you know, some believe that Jesus didn't really know who it was. I mean, he did turn around and said, who touched me? And so it says that, and Jesus immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around to the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? But his disciples said to him, you see this multitude thronging you and you say, who touched me? You see this multitude, everybody's touching you. And you say, who touched me? And so what this tells us is, this woman did something different than everybody else. Isn't it wonderful to know that our healing, our deliverance, our faith isn't dependent upon what everybody else is doing. It's dependent on what we do. It's dependent upon what we believe. And so it says, And Jesus immediately, knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around to the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? But his disciples said to them, to him, you see this multitude thronging you and you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see her who had done this thing. But when the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him, and told him the whole truth. <clears throat> you know, <laughs> what's interesting about this is, is we hear the all accounts of how Jesus of Nazareth went about doing good, healing all that were oppressed of the devil. How the multitudes would come to Jesus and he would, uh, he would heal them and so forth. But even amongst all those records that we have, this woman was uncertain of what his response was going to be. You know, I think we need to come to the place when we begin to realize that it was God who gave us the authority. It was God who told us to lay hands on the sick and see him recover. It was God who said that by the stripes of Jesus we've been healed. It was, by, it, was, it was he who said that he would supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory through Christ Jesus. And we need to have such confidence in that that when we see the manifestation in our life, we're not surprised by it. You know, uh, <clears throat> see, I'm old school when it comes to football. 
you know, Bud Grant, who coached the Vikings for many, many years. It was the last end of his career as a coach where they began the uh, celebration in the end zone. And, and Bud Grant was interviewed on that one time, says, what do you think about it? And he says, oh, I guess it's okay for everybody else, but nobody on my team better do it. And he says, I believe that when you score a touchdown, you ought to act like you've been there before. You know, when God moves in our life, we ought to act like it's happened before. Because it has happened before. It ought to be something that we're familiar with. But I, I know where we're at right now. We're, 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 we've kind of taken the cycle where we're, we were in the 80s when I received, uh, well, back further than that, in the 70s, when I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the charismatic renewal was going on and there were miracles taking place. And uh, we, we were always surprised when we saw it because we'd never seen anything like that before. Well, you know, I, I think we need, need a resurgent of that today to where we go to church with an expectation that God is going to move in a mighty way that if there's somebody there that needs healing in their body, that they're going to be healed. If we go to church and there's, the, there's, there's something that's been afflicting us, bringing bondage into our life, that we're, we're set free of it. We get so convinced of it that we bring our enemies to church knowing that if God can touch them, that enemy can become a friend. <laughs> what a thought. But you know what? We need to believe that what God says in his word is true. And that's where this woman was. But notice she hadn't experienced a lot of it because she wasn't sure what his response to her was going to be. But his response was joy. And so he looked to see her who had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith, your faith, not my faith, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. You know, <clears throat> when Jesus touches us, we're made whole. Not just healed, we're made whole. You know, when she touched the hem of Jesus' garment, she felt healing virtue flow into her body and she was completely healed. And so now here, Jesus, after she's already been healed, he looks at her and he says, daughter, your faith has made you whole, has healed you. Now go, be free of your affliction. What was the affliction? Everything that was told before. How she had spent everything that she had had only grown worse. She was living in poverty. You've heard the account, how she really, she wasn't supposed to be out in public because a woman in her condition under the Levitical law was to be taken, if, if you went out in public, was to be taken to the edge of the city and stoned. Anybody would touch her, she, they would be considered unclean. All they had to do was touch her garments. She was unclean, touch where she had been sitting or lying or anything, would be unclean. But she was completely 
healed of her affliction that very moment when Jesus spoke over her. Jesus honestly spoke over her and she was made whole. In Luke 2, 52 and then in 2.11 it says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor of God and men. And for there is born unto you this day a, uh, in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Well, <clears throat> this is what I want you to see in this. Jesus grew in stature. I mean, Jesus was God. Amen. But he came as a, a man. He laid aside his deity. And so, if Jesus increased, you and I are supposed to increase as well. You know, this woman, at this point in time, because she heard about Jesus, she went to him, but even in the midst of that, there was an element of uncertainty. We need to be maturing and growing where we get rid of that uncertainty. When, when we have a need in our life, we know that God is going to meet that need. How do we know that? Well, last week we started talking about um, the laws, how God has placed in motion laws and principles. And that those laws and principles, the significance of it is that they work. They work for everybody that will apply them. There, there's the key. That will apply them, that if we'll believe them and act upon them, that we'll see um, those manifestations. And so in your notes it says in Roman number two, it says, when you tap into these spiritual laws, the power of God just flows. Why do we tap into these spiritual laws? Because of faith, because we believe what God says. And so it's no longer a matter of trying to make it happen. It becomes an, an expectation. You know, you, know you, you hear it from people, especially when they're first getting a hold of the message of faith and so forth, and, and uh, something didn't happen the way they expected. And so you hear words come out of, well, I just need to try harder. No, it isn't about us trying. It's about us believing what Jesus has already done for us, because that's the significance of these, these spiritual laws. God established his kingdom to operate under spiritual laws. Now, the thing about it is, is we cooperate with them. You know, in the same way that we're to cooperate with the Holy Spirit, we're to cooperate with these laws, these principles that have been placed in motion. And what does it mean to cooperate with them? Well, we apply them in our life. You know, we, we don't go around just doing whatever. We apply those principles, and, and as a result of that, we expect something to happen. Last week, you know, we, we talked about these laws and principles, and that one of those principles was that we can have what we say. The words that come out of our mouth are very important. And we looked at the scripture in Psalms where it says that life and death are in the power of the tongue. 
And so how do we cooperate with that law or that principle? Now that, that law principle is working in our life. But how do we cooperate with it? Well, we begin to speak out what God says about us. We allow that to begin to dominate and to control our lives. And so in doing that, we allow those laws to be enforced. You know, whether we believe it or not, the law of gravity, other natural laws, they work. Whether we believe it or not. But if we want to overcome it, that means we have to practice some principles. We have to apply some things. But that law is going to work all the time if we don't want it to be detrimental to us. Well, you know, the thing about it is the law of speech works every time. And so if we want it to be a blessing in our life rather than a curse, that means we need to take control of the words that come out of our mouth. We don't just go out and say, well, que sera, sera, what will be, will be. You know, if I'm predestined to be blessed, I'll be blessed. And if I'm predestined to be damned, I guess I'll be damned. No. We've been given the right to enforce those laws so that we can determine to some degree what's going to take place in our life because of what Jesus has done for us. In your notes, I've got 1 Peter, the second chapter in the 24th verse. It says, Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sin, might live to righteousness. Who himself, you know, <clears throat> the significance of that is when it says he himself or himself means he and nobody else. No one else was able to do it. Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we having died to sin might live for righteousness. You know, <clears throat> We, we've talked about this before, how um, God doesn't bring us out to leave us nowhere. You know, the children of Israel, when Moses led them out of Egypt, God directed them to, he brought them out of Egypt, but they were to go into the promised land. They were to go into Canaan, but they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Why? Because they didn't believe what God said. He said, go in and possess the land, but they didn't believe it, so they wandered in the wilderness. You know, there's a, there's a lot of people in Christendom that have been brought out of sin, but they've never entered into righteousness. And so they're, they're supposedly free from sin, but you know what? You'll never walk free of sin if you don't step into righteousness. And so they're, it's like they're wandering around in the wilderness because they, they've not done the second part of it. They've come out, but they've never gone in. You've come out of the world, but you know what? <clears throat> if you don't go into the kingdom or if you don't go into righteousness, you sit out there in the 
Netherlands, nowhere lands, and you wonder why. Because you've not experienced the fullness of what Jesus has made available to us. You see, there's a principle that we, we cooperate with Almighty God. We come out, but then we also go in so that we can experience the fullness of life. Who himself bore sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sin, were dead to sin. Everybody say, I'm dead to sin. You're dead to sin so that you might live for righteousness, that we might live a righteous life. But you know, if you spend your life resisting sin, you'll never live a righteous life because that's what will dominate you. Now, I'm not saying we're supposed to sin. <laughs> I'm not saying that at all because we're dead to it. It has no right to us. It has no authority over us. But if we don't enter into righteousness, what happens is sin, once again, tries to take dominance of our life. It, it convinces us, it speaks to us, it tells us that we can't make it. But when we enter into righteousness, when we enter into the kingdom of God, sin doesn't stand a chance because every time sin tries to manifest in our life, we just declare to it, I'm dead to you. And I'm alive to Christ Jesus. Why? Because that's where we put our focus. But then the very last part of the verse, it says, by whose stripes you were healed. We're not trying to get healed. We are healed. It's past tense. And you know, <clears throat> I believe that he puts that past tense in there for a very specific purpose so that we know that it's already been done. In the same way that he himself bore our sins, he took care of our sickness and disease. He healed our body. You know, it's an interesting thing about one of the laws of Bible interpretation. You know, there, there, there are some very simple principles in, in interpreting Scripture. You know, principle number one is we take what Scripture says at face value. Yeah, I'm one of those. I'm, I believe in the inerrancy of the Word of God. I believe it's our final authority. But then we, we take the Scripture in, in its context, that's talking about the verses around it. And, and then, of course, in the context of the book that it's in, in the context of the covenant, you know, so, uh, you know, we interpret uh, the New Testament uh, by the light of the New Testament and the Old Testament by the light of the New Testament. You know, it used to be that when I'd hear somebody preach out of the Old Testament, I thought they were, whew, they were really spiritual. You know, and, but I began to find out something. Generally speaking, what they would do is they would preach something out of the Old Testament and then they'd use the New Testament as their proof text. But you know what? We're not under the Old Covenant anymore. We're under the New Covenant. And so we take the New Testament and we use the Old Testament scriptures as proof text 
for the New Testament. In other words, we reverse it. And so our primary focus is, is always in the New Testament. It isn't because we're saying that the Old Testament is insignificant. It's just that the covenant that we're in is the New Testament. That's why Brother Hagin always said we ought to spend the majority of our time reading the epistles because the, the epistles were written to us, the church. The Old Testament was written to the Jewish nation, the Jewish people. And it applies to us, but not in the same sense that the New Testament does because that's the covenant that we're under because of what Jesus has already accomplished for us. In the, in the New Testament, once you get past the Gospels, now the Gospels are very important, but the Gospels are still pointing towards the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. We see the life of Jesus, and Jesus is our ultimate example, but even in the Gospels, they're still pointing ahead. They're pointing ahead to the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Everything that we read in the Old Covenant is pointing ahead to the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. All the prophecies, all the festivals, everything that we see in the Old Testament, they're pointing to Jesus. Because Jesus is the Messiah that they were looking to. Now, once we get into Acts and into the epistles to the very end, what's happening? We're looking back. We're looking back to the completed works of Jesus. Why? Because it's already been done. When you're looking forward to something, looking forward to it being accomplished. But when you look back, you see what's already been done. You know, Monday was... Emily's birthday. See those pictures on Facebook? Oh, my sweet sake. I lay, sat there and bawled looking at those pictures. They're just so stinking cute. <clears throat> but you know what? I didn't, I didn't sit around looking at, a, you know, dreaming about when Emily comes. Because Emily has already come. But I, I remember the excitement, the anticipation before she was born. Lauren and Andrew were so excited because they were going to have a little, for a period of time, a little brother or sister. Then eventually they found out they were going to have a little sister and they were so excited about it. Pastor Becky and I were so excited about it because we're going to have another little, little granddaughter and we were looking forward to it. But you know what? <clears throat> we're not looking forward to it anymore because she's already here. And you look at those pictures and you, you see the cute little face and you see her flexible body and, you know, as she's doing her stuff, you know, she wants, you know what she wants to be when she grows up? She wants to be a contortionist. <laughs> Why? Who knows? But she probably will be because she is. But see, we look back because it's an accomplished fact. Why? Do we look to Jesus because he's already paid the price for our sin? We're not looking for things. Oh, Jesus. Oh, Jesus. If you would only forgive me of my sin, if you'd only pay the price for my sin. No, he's already paid it. Oh, Jesus. Oh, Jesus. If you'd only heal me. No, he's already healed us. 
And so that's why we look back and that's why the epistles are so important. We look back to the completed works of Jesus because it's already been done. He's already done it all. In Ephesians, the first chapter, and I'm going to begin in the 18th verse. Really, it's really hard to read Ephesians 1 without reading the whole thing, but for the sake of time, we'll just start in the 18th verse. And he says, The eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Do you know that your understanding can be enlightened? You know, <clears throat> to me, that's knowing what you know. You know, I, I, I grew up going to church, was in confirmation, and had to memorize scripture and the catechism and everything, and, and um, did it because I had to. But I, I, I still had, there was an element of knowledge, I guess an element of understanding, but not really. It was more having the knowledge in there. And once I got born again, there was a, there's a very interesting phenomena that I went through. There were scriptures that I didn't even remember memorizing. That we'd be listening to a teaching or something, and all of a sudden, this scripture would rise up. And it was like all at once, when that scripture came up, I would have an understanding of that scripture that I probably hadn't read since I was in confirmation. But you know what, even, even since then, you know, because <clears throat> I've had a read through the Bible program that I've read every year for I don't know how long. And so I've read scriptures, but you know, there, there's times somebody will be teaching something or I'll, I'll read something or hear something and all of a sudden, that passage, even though I've probably read it 50, 60, 100 times, if not more, all at once, I'm enlightened. I see something about that scripture that I've never seen before. And that's what God wants to do in our life. He wants to enlighten us. It's like, you know, we, we, if we saw somebody's arm pop out, we would say, whoa. That's a miracle. It would be a miracle if they didn't have an arm. You know, if they just put it in the sleeve, that would be a little different. You know, but if you watch, um, what's his name? It's supernatural. Um, Sid Ross. You know, one of the things, he always has this guy there, and all of a sudden this arm comes, and it's so fake. But it's really kind of cool. <clears throat> but it, that, that's Sid for you. But, it, but anyway, that would be, I, I love being in a meeting, all of a sudden somebody didn't have an arm, and they had an arm. Didn't have a lake, all of a sudden they have a lake. That'd be, that'd be pretty cool, wouldn't it? Ooh, glory to God. We might get some enlightenment on that. This, this is what I want you to understand. But when you receive a revelation of Jesus, when, when knowledge, when you receive an enlightenment of knowledge, that's just as much the flow of the Holy Spirit in your life, a miracle as somebody's arm popping out. 
You know, I think one of the problems with us today, we get so caught up in the spectacular, we miss the supernatural. Because you know what? God wants to do something supernatural in every one of our lives every single day. And it may not be something that we can put our finger on and say, whoa, that was supernatural. But you know what? He wants to give us understanding. He wants to give us enlightenment. He wants us to be able to see truth that we've never seen before. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his, glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and he seated him in heavenly places far above. It must say far above. Not just above, it says far above principalities and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to head to all things over the church, which is his body. And I guess I was supposed to stop before that. But how do you, how do you, how do you stop? Am I going dead? But it, it, it's amazing, you know, when we begin to read what he's provided for us. And all we have to do is cooperate with him. You know, the gospel is so simple. So simple. The gospel is so simple. And I think oftentimes we've made it so complex. Charles Capps said one time, he said, you know, <clears throat> the gospel is so simple it takes a teacher to confuse you. And I really think that that's, that's true. And what happens is we get, we get almost prideful rather than taking the simplicity of the gospel and, and using it for his glory. We get confusing and we confuse those around us because we've got to make it complex. But all he's saying that we need to do is cooperate with him. You know, <clears throat> if you really believe something, it's easy to cooperate. And especially if you really believe that it's going to be to your advantage. It's easy. And that's what this power of the flow is about. It's about believing something and cooperating with them. And you know what? It, it manifests in all different areas of our life. You know, <clears throat> the, the enlightenment, if you will. 
You know, I, I remember being down in Tulsa at camp meeting one year and we'd just taken the church here. And uh, Oral Roberts had just preached the message and getting into the flow and he wasn't planning on it that night. Oral or Brother Hagin just had him share it. And so he shared this message and then Norval Hayes got up after him and we'd already taken the offering because it was a Thursday night and Thursday night, I think it was, was always Rhema night. So they always were taking the big offering for, for Rhema. Norval Hayes comes up and he says, I believe that we're supposed to take an offering so that people can get into the flow. How do we, how do we get into the flow? It's there, there's some kind of an action. There's something that we do to get into the flow because James says that works without faith without works or faith without corresponding action is dead. And so if our, if our faith is alive, there's action that goes along with that. When you heard the gospel and faith came alive in you, the action was that you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. When you see in the scriptures concerning the baptism of the Holy Spirit and faith begins to rise up that it's, that it's for you, that it belongs to you, that faith is going to have action. You're going to receive that baptism of the Holy Spirit with a manifestation of tongues. If we believe in healing and we have an infirmity in our body, there's going to be an action that goes along with that. It's going to affect our confession but if there's the opportunity to be prayed for, we're going to be bold enough to get up out of our seats and go up and receive prayer for it. Why? Because of faith, because we believe it. Well, we're down in Tulsa, and Norville gets up and he says, I really believe that there's pastors here that need to <clears throat> sow a seed for a building. We didn't have a building. We were still up in the Women's Club. Well, it was called the Civic Center then. You know, you, you knew people, you don't know this, but we used to pack out the Civic Center. We packed that sucker out. Of course, there's a pool table in the middle of it, you know, but, but we, we had chairs all the way around that pool table. <clears throat> but anyway, so we didn't have a building, you know, and I'd only been here a couple months at that point. And so... Uh, I leaned over to Becky, and he, he, the seed that he mentioned was $1,000. And I leaned over to Becky, she was sitting next to me, and I said, I, I believe that I'm supposed to pledge $1,000 to this. And she said, well, do what you're supposed to do. And I said, but you do realize that if the elders don't go along with it, we're going to take care of the $1,000 because I'm going to be true to my word. And she says, whatever. So I took out a piece of paper and wrote uh, IOU, I guess. And I went up to the front and <clears throat> it, it, it's one of the most exciting offerings I've ever been in. Like I said, they had already taken the offering and I think they raised a half a million dollars for, for Rama. And so uh, they said, just, just bring it up. And so they were going to do it by the aisles and they started that way, but the anointing was so strong, the flow was so strong, people started crawling over seats and everything to get to the front. And so I finally, I was in the balcony, crawled out of the balcony and get up there. And 
<clears throat> and I, I've never experienced it like this before. But I had that piece of paper in my hand and they had a piece of carpet. It was in the uh, Tulsa Auditorium where, you know, basketball arena where whoever was playing at that time. And so, but when you got up there, there was a piece of carpet. And the moment my foot touched the carpet was like, whoa. I mean, I know I wasn't going in slow motion, but it felt like I was in slow motion. This is really cool. And everybody just throwing their, their, their gift up on the stage. And so I just kind of went. And I landed on the stage and went back and sat down. And, but you know what? In just a little over a year, we were building this building. And what's interesting is um, the money that we put into it initially was basically a hundredfold return on the gift that went forward. God's faithful. But see, this is what I want you to see is that that, that flow can happen in any area of your life. Any area. And so but it, it, it requires action on our part. I could have sat there in my seat, and I'm not saying that we wouldn't have had this building, but it wouldn't have been built in the same way because we operated in faith. Although there are many different spiritual laws, there's different ones that govern in different ways. In, in Matthew 12, 34, it says, Brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. I always caught the hammer syndrome. You always know it's in somebody's heart when they hit their thumb with a hammer. Amen. Because you don't have time to think about it, and so it just, it just comes out of your mouth. You know, the, the first thing that I learned uh, after I got saved with the hammer syndrome is say nothing. <laughs> because I wasn't ready to give out a praise the Lord yet at that time. I just didn't want the other stuff to come out. But it says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You know, I think about going back to the woman with the issue of blood. It doesn't really tell us. But I wonder how long she thought on it. I wonder how long it had been since she had heard about Jesus. And she thought on it. And she thought on it. And it came out of her mouth. If I but touch his clothing, I'll be made well. You know, it might have been instantaneous. I don't know. But I wonder, how long did she think on it? You know, how long do we think on things? Because when what we're, what we're thinking on, what we're dwelling on, what we're meditating on, is what's ultimately going to come out of our mouth. And what comes out of our mouth, as we looked at last week, is extremely important. Because in our mouth, the words that come out of our mouth it's death and life. 
34. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth good things. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure of his heart, brings evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account to it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. And so again, it shows us the words that come out of our mouth are so important. It says, it doesn't say God condemns us. It says we're condemned. We condemn ourselves by the words that come out of our mouth. We need to guard them. We need to make sure that the right things come out of our mouth. There's, there's so much in Scripture where it talks about the importance of words. <clears throat> Got James, the third chapter there. And it says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. <clears throat> For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. He's saying if we can control the words, if we can control our tongue, we can control anything. You know, because it's our, it's our words that are the hardest thing to, to control. You know, in, in, in culture today, we don't do that. I mean, if you have a, a minor sitting with you, a young person sitting with you watching a, a ball game on TV, you almost have to keep the volume down. Because the players and the coaches, they can't control their tongue. You know, there, there was an interview. You hear it all the time by the, by the announcers. Well, I apologize for that. Well, why are those words being spoken anyway? Because they can't control their tongue. They may be able to control that big overpaid body, but they can't control their, their tongue. Why? Because of lack of character. And so he says that if we can control our tongue, if we can control the words that come out of our mouth, we'll be able to control everything. But you know what? If we can't control that, our whole life will be in disruption. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us. And we turn their whole body. You know, <clears throat> what we say with our mouth will direct our entire life. You know, and my confession went from I can't, I can't, I can't, to I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. My entire life changed. It redirected my whole life. When my confession went from I'm sick, I'm sick, I'm sick, to by the stripes of Jesus I've been healed, changed my entire life. When it went from we can never afford anything to my God supplies all my needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus, it changed my entire life. You see, the words that we speak direct our life. And I know that... <clears throat> You know, the confession message isn't a popular message today. We went through that cycle. But you know what? We need to put some importance back on 
the words that come out of our mouth because it's extremely important. You know, our children need to hear they can, not that they can't. And that they, they need to hear that they can through Christ Jesus. Because they need to recognize that that's where their source is. Now, their source is an education, but their education can help them as long as their education is focused in the right direction. And so the words are so important. Look also at the ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a small rudder, wherever the pilot says, even so the tongue is a little member and boasts of great things. You know, we look at it and we think it's really not that important. But let me tell you something. I believe it's extremely important. You know, of course, I'm, I'm old. I'm old school. You know, and so I think, you know, when, when children learn to be respectful uh, to teachers and so forth, I think that's important. You know, it, it appears in the eyes of many that it isn't anymore. But I think the culture that we're trying to, that we're having to deal with today is a direct result, not of the big things, but of the small things. And it's, it's, it's evolving more around the words that are being spoken than anything else. You know, and so if we don't like the direction of something, we need to change the way that we're addressing it or we're speaking about. You can read the rest of James 3 for yourself because the whole chapter is dealing with the importance of the tongue and the words that come out of our mouth. You know, Mark 11, you need to read Mark 11, especially when you get to 23 and 24 because it talks about how we'll say to the mountain, be thou removed. But notice how the mountain gets moved. It's by saying something. Say to the mountain, be thou removed and cast into the sea. And we don't doubt it in our hearts, but believe that those things which we say will come to pass, we'll have those things that we say. But once again, it comes back to the words that we speak, that they're so very, very important. You know, Proverbs 18 is the one that we talked about last week. How death and life are in the power of the tongue. The words that we speak, they'll produce death, life. They'll produce hope, defeat. You know, and I, I don't claim by any stretch of the imagination to be an expert of this. But I can truthfully say, in my personal experience, when I come in and I begin to use positive words, things happen. I can go into a sick person's room and just because I'm there, they don't feel any better. They're still feeling sick. But in our conversation, we begin to talk about hope and, and so on and so forth. And by the time I leave the room, they're not feeling great. But they have a smile on their face and they're hopeful. That's the power of words. On a Monday night, I can be speaking to these men and I can, up at the prison, I can just sense that they're, they're in the dumps. They're down. And I just begin to exhort them with the word of God. Before very long, I see smiles on their face. They begin to feel good. They begin to sit up rather than slouch down. Why? 
because of the words that are being spoken over them. Life is coming into them. And we have that power in our lives and in the lives of those around us. The woman said, if I but touch, notice she didn't just simply think it. She said, if I but touch his clothes, I'll be made well. And what happened? She was made well. But you know what? She was just like the prodigal son. The prodigal son, when he was in the pig's pen, and it says that he longed to eat the pods that they're feeding the hogs, but nobody gave him anything. It said, finally, he came to his senses, and he said within himself, if I but go to my father's house, for the servants in my father's house have more than enough, and I'll say to my father, I don't deserve to be your son. Just treat me as one of your servants. And you know what he did? He got up and he went to his father's house. And he said to his father, I'm not worthy to be your son. Consider me as one of your slaves. And the father says, we'll have none of that. Put a ring on, a, on his finger, put a robe on his back, put sandals on his feet, kill the fatted calf. The son of mine that was lost has been found. He is dead and he's alive. This woman said, if I but touch the hem of his garment, I'll be made well. And what'd she do? She went and she touched the hem of, her gar of his garment. And what happened? Just as she had said, it came to pass. She was made well. We need to guard the things that we say. We need to guard the things that come out of our mouth. Because what we say is extremely important. So, <clears throat> this isn't a message on what we say, but it's on the power flow. And how do we get the power flow? By the words that come out of our mouth. Because, <clears throat> you know, words, words create an expectation. You know, uh, in high school I had a coach. Obviously, if I played sport, I had a coach. <clears throat> But uh, my freshman year, we played at Sioux, I played at Sioux Valley, and we were horrible. Uh, I mean, we broke, here in Lake Minnesota, we broke their losing streak by losing to them. I think they had lost something like 60-some games in a row. I think, I, I think, I don't know if they still do, but at one time, they hold, held the Minnesota State record for consecutive losses. And we broke that streak for them. And so we were really bad. And, uh, but our coach was really motivational. Uh, I remember one game, because the football field was away from the, um, from the school, we'd, we'd get into a bus at halftime to be able, because it was a little bit warmer. You wanted warmer when you played football in Minnesota. And uh, so at halftime, he came in and he looked at us and I won't tell you what he said because we're in church, uh, but he said, Ota with you. And he left the bus and we could see him over at the concession stand having coffee with some of the fans. <clears throat> Needless to say, he was not very uh, enthusiastic about us. And... Uh, 
We, we basically measured up to his expectations because we had no expectations. In fact, I think as a team, we set a record for sending players, our players, to the hospital because we had so many injuries. I mean, it was, it was horrible. But, you know, we knew nothing about words. He thought, you know, if you're lousy and rotten, no good, I'll just tell everybody how rotten, lousy, and no good you are. And we, we measured up to it, you know. And, uh, but you know what? It's how it is in every area of our life. What are, we, what are, what are the words in our, that we speak, what are they going to do? Are they going to produce life or are they going to produce death? Because when we're talking about death, we're not necessarily talking about physically dying. A person may wish they could physically die, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about death of, of expectation, death of energy, death of effort. But you know what? We can speak life into those situations. You know, and if you're in a contest, somebody's going to lose. You know, and so the issue isn't even losing because whatever the contest is, somebody's going to lose. But that doesn't mean that the individual that lost didn't apply themselves. But you know, if we have positive words, we can do our very best no matter what. And I believe that that's what God's expectation of us is. And that's why he's given us this principle. That no matter what the circumstances is, it may not look very good. But you know what? He's bigger than our circumstances. So be blessed in the name of Jesus and uh, have a wonderful evening.